This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Dr. Robert Isaacs, welcome to Better Reading. Good morning and hello, listeners. Now, I've got to tell all our listeners out there, where are you? Where are you located at the moment, Rob? I'm in Broome. I'm out in the Kimberleys, yeah. I'm now settled in Broome. I've left my country down in the south, which is down the southwest of uh, Perth and the Bunbury, Bussington, Margaret River area. I'm a Noongar man, yeah? Yeah. And brought my wife back to her country, Yari country. All right. So that's why I'm explaining to our listeners that the sound's not um, fabulous at the moment because I don't think the internet's been great. But we're going to persevere because you're worth it. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce you. So Robert Isaac is a highly respected Aboriginal elder. He has dedicated his life to breaking down cultural barriers and improving the lives of disadvantaged people. Career highlights include establishing the first Aboriginal medical service and associated healthcare clinics, negotiating the first land use and mining royalties arrangements, improving relations between Aboriginals and the justice system, assisting in establishing Clontarf Aboriginal College and leading edge groundbreaking housing initiatives. Robert has been the recipient of many awards, including Member of the Order of Australia, on the Queen's Birthday Honorary List, NAIDOC Male Elder and West Australian of the Year. Now he continues his community work through board appointments, ambassadorships, his work as a Justice of the Peace and speaking engagements. Um, And he has a book, it's called Two Cultures, One Story, and that's why he's speaking with us today. Now, Robert, before I start, um, and I very rarely do this, I very rarely read from a book because I know that uh, our listeners want to listen to you and your story, but this moved me to my core. So I am going to read it and then I'm going to ask you to talk about it. So this is the prologue in your book. I stood at the school gates with nothing but clothes on my back. I had no money, no family, no home, nothing to show for the past 17 years except my cheap cardboard suitcase and a reasonable grasp of reading, writing and arithmetic. The Christian brothers made it clear that they owed me nothing and had no intention of providing any support. Brother Duckworth escorted me to the school gates and said to me in no uncertain terms, Robert, when you leave the gates of Clontarf, you will never be allowed to come back. I looked at him puzzled. I was excited to be leaving Clontarf, but it was bittersweet experience and I stood there feeling a little shaken. That feeling was rapidly replaced by anger. Why was he saying this? I'd embraced the church and nearly all he stood for. Yet here I was with the door literally being closed in my face. What did I ever do to you for you to make that comment? I asked him. His face remained blank and tight-lived as he closed the gates behind me. That's kind of remarkable, isn't it? It's it's a very, very emotional start to the book. 
Uh, it, it certainly is. And um, not only myself, but many thousands of boys and girls right across Australia would have uh, gone through the same uh, situation that I did. Now, in Western Australia, of course, where uh, the government had uh, legislation on one race of people, obviously Aboriginal people in uh, the state of Western Australia, and it had also policies on Aboriginal uh, uh, people in the old Native Welfare Days. Uh, Native Welfare Days were were, uh, were under a, an act called the, the Aborigines Act from 1905, right back to, um, uh, in, uh, right through the centuries leading up to where we are today. And those policies were, were, were deliberately aimed of uh, people like myself and, um, and Aboriginal people to distance us away from, uh, from our families, our heritage, our culture, our loved ones. And so the 17 years at Clontarf uh, were lonely. They were, they were sad. And um, I can remember when I was only about 10, uh, I fronted one of the brothers at the school and I said, Mr. And he says, you call me brother. And I said, I want to know where, what I'm doing in this institution and where's my, my family, my mum and dad. His comments were, you don't bother me and I won't bother you. So that was a total rejection of that. Awful. Um, I want to ask, tell us about what happened. Why were you in that institution? You're part of the stolen generation. And for those that are listening, we've got a lot of overseas listeners. Uh, can you explain what, what the stolen yeah. generation was? Or uh, is? Uh, under the Native Welfare Act, this is the Act of Parliament, uh, for the uh, legislative requirements, Aboriginal people were targeted and um, uh, all over the place, whether you're in the bush, whether you're in camps and missions and uh, and so on. I was uh, born at King Edward Hospital, which is a major hospital here in Western Australia in Perth, and I was taken from mum at six months, years of age, and put into the founding home, which is called St Joseph's Founding Home, run by a Catholic nun. Why? I don't know. That, that, that's, that was a policy of government. That, that was a, a policy of government to remove Aboriginal children from their mums and dads. So, they, so she hadn't they, given you up? I, I don't think so, but uh, they had no say. The mums and dads didn't have any say. The police were given a task, and you can't blame, really blame the police uh, for coming in and, and taking us away. The thing is that it was Native welfare officers and the department and legislation, which was government policy, uh, was to remove us from, from our loved ones, from our families, from our community, from our heritage and so on. And so as young kids, we, we had no, no knowledge of, uh, of what was going on here. It was just a brutal, brutal, colonised uh, legislation uh, that came out of Britain as far as I'm concerned. Where, and, and, and to target one race of people, Aboriginal people, was absolutely shocking because when the migration scheme was on in the 50s and 60s, where a lot of young boys and girls were coming over from England, Wales, Malta, and so on, uh, they were put in these institutions. They were told lies, you know, that they, that they had never had a mum and dad when they left the shores of England. And so when they came over, they were placed in the institutions like I was. So there was a deliberate attempt by the Commonwealth and state governments right across Australia to give us a hard time and to, uh, and to say to Aboriginal people, out of sight, out of mind, so it's very hurtful that um, that the governments had put legislation on one race of people, but they didn't do it to any other race of people in the, in, in this country. So um, here we are today in in, in 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 Aboriginal affairs. We're talking about closing the gap. We're talking about the stolen generation. 
Do you know, for me, I mean, what is so shocking about your story and just through ignorance, I always thought that what happened with the stolen generation were these children were very, very wrongly taken away from their families and put into white families, right? I I, I thought that was the purpose of it, even though that is horrendous in itself, right? But to be taken from that and to be put in an orphanage or an institution, it just doesn't make sense. Well, there was three institutions that I uh, was, was brought up, and one was the founding home. The other one, when they got a, bit, a little bit older, they moved on to another institution called Castle de Boys Home, which is out there in Bentley, one of the suburbs of Perth, run by the Christian Brothers. And as you got older there, you, you moved on to another institution, and Clontarf was the last of the institutions uh, where you, as you get older, you're growing up, and, and so that's where you were until 17 years, locked away 24-7, and, and so I had no boundaries to go to. I had uh, I had no say, and um, and no like no time that a welfare officer came to see me how I was growing up as a young boy, whether I was good, whether, whether I was well, whether I was eating well, uh, what was happening in these institutions. And I can tell you a lot of stories what what really happened with that. So sad things happen in in, in that these mainly Castledear and Clontarf, where I seen young kids just get slaughtered to the lambs. As far as I'm concerned, you know. And, uh, and I, that's why I had to come out after a long spend of my public life in in, uh, in my community that uh, I had to tell the story and um, and it's uh, I'm still grieving from it and uh, but I'm lucky that uh, my Catholic faith had put me in good stead all my all my life in my job. I'm my I'm life. astounded that you still believe in the institutions. Yeah, well, when I was told not to come back, I went back. And I went back to Pontarf to set up the Old Boys Association, which brought 400 to 500 boys to a dinner each year. I went back to play football, cricket, you name it. Most of all, I went back in 1983 onwards to set up the first ever Aboriginal education college because the institution like Pontarf was shut down and uh, there was no role for for the Christian brothers or the institution to, to be and so when that institution came vacant, we went to the Christian Brothers and said we'd like to set a, a, a school up to, to, to educate our young males and females who would drop out from the public sector and private sector, and we got that support from the Brothers. So that's one good thing through the reconciliation process. So when you left the boys' home, you said you turned on your heel and you walked down the road heading into the town. You didn't know what you were going to do next, but you knew that whatever it would be, it would be on your terms. This is your words. I'd earn a living by the sweat of my own brow. Most importantly, and this is another line that has moved me to my core, I'd find a home and make it mine. And you were 17 years old. Yeah, it was, it was very difficult. I was um, uh, went into, into Perth, the city of Perth, uh, a suburb called East Perth, and uh, swatted into, a, um, into accommodation where homeless people were, you know, people who were not only dependent on alcohol and so on, they were just homeless people. They had no homes to go to. So I was, uh, as a young boy, mixing with men and women who were about 45, 50 years older than me. And uh, so that wasn't to be, I didn't really want to be uh, closed in and, and, and sucked in or saturated into that sort of living. And so I went to the uh, the Catholic Church in, in Perth and, and there was a Mrs Sanderson who was a welfare officer for young kids. I said, look, uh, I need some food. I need help, support, and I want to be housed and I want to start my life. And um, she was able to uh, help me in that area, found me accommodation uh, with a family, 
they didn't come by foster family because I, I, I was still searching and seeking out for my mum and, 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 and loved ones. Did you know at that stage that you were of the stolen generation? I did not know that myself until I got a job uh, in, with the government in 1973-74 for the first time Aboriginal people in WA were, were getting employed in all state government departments like health, employment, housing and community welfare. I, I can tell you uh, in the book, it'll, it'll tell you about how I uh, met a beautiful lady when I was uh, doing a survey in the East Perth area once I got the job. And the third week of that survey, I um, happened to knock on the door and this old lady uh, uh, answered it and I had my badge Robert Isaacs on uh, to my shirt and she kept looking at it and I said, there's something distracting you. And she says, yes, are you related to all that, all the Isaacs family from the southwest, Margaret River, Buston and Perth? And I said, look, I'm, tr- I'm trying to find my family, my mob. And she says, would you like to come back in two days' time because I had to move on and do further my, my work during the day? And I said, I'll come back. And I went back on the Friday at 12 o'clock and she walked me around from her home into Beaufort Street, which is only just around the corner, and there were two big doors. And um, the doors opened, and there was all my mob, up to 25, 30 of my people in there looking at me, waiting uh, to see me. And I just broke down, emotionally broke down, and it was Mrs Isaac, my auntie, uh, ran the soup kitchen for the homeless people in, in East Perth, everyone, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And that's where it all started, by linking up with that soup kitchen and Samuel Isaacs and all the other mob there. I was able to meet them and greet and cuddle them. And, you know, it's just so overwhelming and sad that, um, that uh, this happened, you know, uh, to a young boy like myself. And uh, to be lonely, it, it, is, it, it can be hard. It's, um, it's hurtful because, you see, so many people doing well, you know, with nice homes, with well families looked after, nice and forks on the table, they've got suits, they've got clothes. All that sort of thing was was, was around me day in and day out. And uh, so I had to have to step up on that and uh, say, well, once I get a, a job, which I'll be happy in, and then I'm going to build my uh, my life. My my career will change. Uh, my my uh, not only my faith, but there's something telling me my spiritual way of dealing with this this thing was to uh, was to grow in me, and that's how it all came about. Getting that job of community and child health services, first time for for Aboriginal people. So um, I thank the government for the day for, for allowing Aboriginal people to, to be employed, and that message got a got a right my message, and we call it grapevine in Nongar country, a grapevine where once you say something in Perth. You can bet your life to people in the great southern southwest around the state. So what I say is just and that sort of thing. And that's how I started to build my career in Aboriginal affairs in WA. And uh, people took notice. And then also people wanted me to sit on their boards and committees. And I did that. And I, that's where I built my esteem, my, uh, my foundation of uh, resumes, you could say. And, um, and I really dominated the scene because I made it what I wanted to do. I wanted to make something out of a young boy that started off with nothing and still has nothing, but I wanted to, to really hit home that all is not lost here for anyone, for any young male or female uh, who went up through, got, went through those institutions. A lot of them may, not, may have not been hurt, but people like myself were hurt. And um, and to have big men and, and, and big men telling you, you know, to, you don't bother me and I won't bother you type sort of thing, 
then that's that's a disgraceful. It's a total rejection. It really is because you know, I mean, what really bothers me about Christians <laughs> that they don't practice what they preach. Here they are, a Christian organisation meant to be looking after the welfare of young people, and more often than not, it's a horrendous experience for those young people. Like not just in Australia, globally. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think they had the, the will. They don't, they didn't have the a background like they got in, in schools today, you know, psychologists, they've got teachers that will, will monitor the young one child about whether they're not coping in the schoolwork and that sort of thing. They didn't have any of that sort of thing. If you got sick, well, you just had to put up with it. You know, you did the Catholic, there were Catholic nuns at the at Pontar, but they had no knowledge about medical health and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, you know, um, there were the good and, and, and bad things of, um, of these institutions. And, but I, I, just, I'm, I'm ha- I have to say that there should never, ever be a repeat of these doors. Tell me about starting your own family. Well, what I did was um, uh, I was, when well, I want to refer to my education, I went to uh, the West Australian Institute of Technology, which is now Curtin University, and I... They were setting up the Aboriginal Bridging course for the first time on any campus in Western Australia. And I was lucky to be chosen, along with many other people, uh, to study further. Uh, I was very interested in legislation, policy, business administration, commerce, that sort of thing. And I was able to do that uh, while I was studying. Then I was, uh, was uh, chosen to receive a scholarship to go to the United States of America to work with my Aboriginal counterparts over there, the Navajo people uh, down in New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, the uh, Navajo, the Ute tribe and Hopi tribe. Uh, they had similar problems parallel to what happens in Australia, poor housing, they just, you name it, they just... But uh, I wanted to come back into Australia, into Western Australia, and, and have it influence in, in, uh, in Aboriginal affairs, have influence in policy making, uh, able to work with governments, uh, three tiers of government, federal, state and local government. And I went about that very, very uh, harmlessly. Uh, I didn't want to rush it. I certainly uh, was listened to uh, by by the authorities that uh, a person like myself um, had some good ideas how to shape the future of Aboriginal affairs in, in WA. And that's what really got me uh, got me going, uh, re- working with everyone, non-Aboriginal people, Aboriginal people themselves most of all, because they are my people. They, they're the ones that they're trusting me to, to forward ahead and, uh, and, and, and improve the health, the housing, employment, the living conditions, to get the people out of the camps, uh, off the reserves, right across Western Australia. I was able to get um, a very good job then uh, by the government. They um, commissioned me to be the chairman and administrator of the Aboriginal Housing Board, set up by the government of the day in 1980. I took that up uh, with glee, knowing that uh, I could have uh, major influence in the State Housing Commission, who never used to house Aboriginal people until 1972. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tell me about meeting your wife. When you left the institution, you decided that you needed to create your own family. And that, to me, is really heart-wrenching. And, you know, how does a person who's 17 years old find his way? Talk to me about that. When I was studying at, uh, at Wait in those days, I, there used to be a break where you can uh, go three or four months uh, anywhere around the state of Western Australia to find a job so you can have some money to pay for your, your course. And I happened to come to Broome, where I am now. And um, in those days, in 1972, 73, uh, Broome was developing. And um, I played a game of football on the, an old football paddock, they call it, which is now the Shires built on that land. And I happened to do injure my foot, but I had to go up to the hospital and um, and I waited at the wait the, uh, where the the casualty section were for someone to come and see me. And this young nurse walked over and says, "Can I help you?" And I said, "Yes, nurse. Can you um got an injured toe? Can you fix it up?" Yeah, she says, "Okay." Then she did that, and two weeks later, I was, I was sitting in a little office as a tubby clerk, and this guy walked in and says, "Were you at the hospital two weeks ago?" And I said, "Yeah, mind your own business." Oh no, no, no. He said, someone's got an eye for you, yeah? And I said, said, well, you tell that someone, uh, come to my office. Now, my office wasn't the office. The office was the pub on a Friday night. If you want to see me, come. And that's how I met Teresa, yeah? We communicated quite a bit uh, over the months and that sort of thing. And then she decided to come down to Perth. And and that's how I met Teresa. And that's how I started my family, you know? And I have two beautiful daughters. You do. I've seen them because there's a picture section in your book. And I wonder for you to have your own family, and it looks like a beautiful family unit, how does that make you feel? I mean, it's just there's so much joy there, I guess, but there's sadness in a way that you didn't have that. Yeah, well, when I was growing up as a, as a boy, I, I I didn't know where babies come from. I thought they were, no. came down from And I don't think the Christian brothers were going to tell you. <laughs> I never got the religious education uh, by, by preparing us for life. The brothers didn't teach us that preparing for life when you left that institution, that one day you'll meet someone, you know, uh, yeah. opposite sex, you could say, and uh, that sort of thing. Never had any of those in those days, you know. So I found my own way because I learned of others and I've worked with others, black and white, uh, about how you pair yourself for a long, long stint in whether it's in your working and how to build a family, how to get the, the good things of life, the luxuries of life and so on. So I build on that. And um, with Teresa's uh, guidance, um, her and I started off with, uh, in community and child health services back in the, in the 70s, uh, late 70s. And, and she got a job with the Aboriginal Medical Service for those 40 years. And uh, she was recognised by the Queen's Birthday Honours List for the Order of Australia and for her services for Aboriginal health. And so Teresa and I were always been the team player. She put me, kept me grounded, you could say, some, a lot of times because I was so keen to get around the state of Western Australia to do the work that I was asked to do by my community and by the government. And um, and that's why I have to say that in the last 25, 30 years, when they talk about closing the gap on Aboriginal people, 
I, I feel that uh, a lot of improvement has been achieved and done, okay? which doesn't get good uh, good news stories in the press, you know. I'm talking about health, housing, employment and so on. And we're seeing so many people now, Aboriginal people, going through university, graduates, for lawyers, doctors, psychologists, professors, you name it, and, um, and so on, because they, they want to do it and they want to say to their mob, if you can do it, I can do it type sort of thing, you know. And that's the learning of my um, philosophy is to, is to say to any young male or female, there's a great opportunity out there in Australia, in this community, and if you can if you put, put your mind and heart to it, it may take a while, but it will work for you, you know. So I always push those bad things aside because if, if you can't go forward if you keep looking back. And I, I, I made that a thing of mine where if I keep looking back, then I'm going to be seeing those three institutions on my left or right-hand shoulder and that sort of thing. So, um, but it's, it'll always play my mind and um, about what took place. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that I was able to keep my Catholic faith. Now, when I found my family, a lot of them are not Christians. Uh, they just don't know uh, Catholic faith, where for some unknown reason, I say to myself and I say to God, did you selectively pick me to be a Catholic and be a good, good boy and that sort of thing, you know? Because you had to get baptised, you had to get confirmed, and Christian and that sort of thing. Uh, Teresa and I got married at Clontarf Chapel. I took Teresa to Clontarf. And then the brother said, don't ever come back to Clontarf. Well, I got married at Clontarf Chapel. I did, deliberately did that in 1977. So um, I wanted to send a message to the, to the authorities <clears throat> that you just can't, uh, you don't rule the roost just because you're a boy at seven or 18 years of age and you can be bullied for the rest of your life, you know. My message was, I'm going to be as better than you. I'm going to be as equal as you. I'm going to be more edu- educated than you. And that's how I build my esteem and my confidence in you know, all my public life, you know. It makes me wonder how many people didn't survive it that came out of there and lost their way completely. A lot of them, a lot of them are passed on, you know, because they're hurt. A lot of them today will never gone back to the institutions. You never see them because, no, I'm not going back there because uh, because of what happened. And that's the message still today, you said. But um, I always say to myself, well, okay, the hurt was there, the terrible things that took place, but I wanted to go through the middle of this whole thing. You know, I had the brothers on one side, the institutions on the right, and I wanted to step through, go right through the middle and uh, break the cycle type sort of thing, you know. And we call it, I call it a barrier where it's them against us type sort of thing. And that's why in my community work, I wanted to break down these barriers. Oh, absolutely. And I can see that. And I can see that they'd be the lucky few that that happened to. Tell me, you know, with your daughters now, what do you hope for them? Well, one's a doctor up here in Broome. Uh, there Kim. we go. <laughs> yes, she's a doctor. She's been a medical doctor for now for 10 years. She wanted to come to Kim- Kimberley because that's her mother's country. And so Kim's been up here. She runs Aboriginal Health up here. Uh, well respected and well liked. These two girls are both graduates from the University of West Australia, so they had a good grounding of uh, and, gr- and grounding of good education. Renee, the oldest daughter, she works for CASA, which is a Commonwealth uh, uh, Aviation uh, uh, Organisation, a top a really top job she's picked up in Canberra. And uh, so those girls are, uh, have done very well through their through their education, through uh, being disciplined in a, in a matter that uh, that came from mum and dad, didn't come from the Christian brothers or the nuns. And um, we're um, going on to, about our daughters. 
in Clontarf, there was discipline there because if, if you got out of control, you copped it, you know. You don't go hit, hurt people and hit them and that sort of thing, you know, where um, uh, where the two daughters of Kim and, uh, and, and Renee are uh, very intelligent girls. Uh, they're highly regarded in our community. And that's what I say to a lot of our uh, young kids, black or white. I say, look, um, education is top priority for me in Aboriginal affairs in this country. It gives you a certain freedom to make choices, doesn't it? It does, and you should not shy off it because if someone says, oh, it's all right for that person who got her education, they say, well, you get off your butt and start doing something about your side of it, you know? And some of them won't listen in that way because they just... uh, Maybe they, they went through a problem too, you know, and that sort of thing. I don't prejudge that sort of thing. But um, to have these two girls and to have Teresa as a, as a family, I couldn't ask for any more. You know, I, yeah, I, I think you finally hit the jackpot, right? Yeah, and that's <laughs> why when I found out I had half-brothers and sisters, and I'm still finding family today. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Who is your immediate family that you found the closest? I found Samuel Isaacs, Elizabeth Isaacs. There's Trevor. There's, there's, oh, there's and so who are many. they to you? How are they related to you? They're cousins. They're related to the to the St. Isaacs on the southwest, Mark Margaret River Buston, great-grandfather, oh. uh, Samuel Isaacs from 1876. So the history of the Isaacs family comes right through that southwest area of Margaret River Buston down to Augusta, into Brumby and into Perth, you know. So we are scattered all over the state too because up here in, uh, in the Kimberleys, up in the one-armed point, there's a lot of Isaacs mob up here, you know, which I want to connect with them shortly, you know. We're all there, you know, because, uh, but they don't probably never met me and I've never met them. But I just say to my wife, yeah, well, you're related to us. Join the family, I say, you know, I don't deny it. So who is the closest relative you've found? Oh, the closest would be um, be, um, uh, Auntie Eliza, you know, she ran the soup kitchen, Uh, Elizabeth Isaacs, Samuel. Then you've got a lot of the mob down there in Busselton, the hills, the houses, there's so many of them now, all connected to the, to this family tree, I call it, you know. And so, and I'm building on that with this family tree. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still researching uh, stuff from 1876 right up to the present moment talking to you, you know. And so that, that's been my whole agenda and my philosophy is why how this book came about in the last 10 years because when I was collating all the, the volumes, someone said to me, God, you've got enough st- stuff there to, to write a book. And that clicked straight away. And so I found a, a writer and Tanaz in Melbourne, and uh, my, what came out of my my, my voice is all written down in, in words and um, and the best of my ability in that area, you know. So um, I'm happy with myself uh, as a, a guy that um, that uh, went about it. No one pushed me. No one deliberately says you you've got to do this. You've got to. And I wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to be a brother, actually. You know, or I even wanted to join the priesthood you know, in those days. You know, but, and one of the brothers said to me, go out into the big, big world and, for five years and come back to me if you want to be a priest or a brother. Well, I did go back and I said, no, I'm, I'm settling what I'm doing. You know, So it, there was so many confusing things in a young boy's mind. You know, Well, I'm glad you, um, you chose the career path that you did and the life that you've chosen. The book is called Two Cultures, One Story. It really is remarkable. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Dr. Robert Isaac. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Jill, thanks very much for having me and thank you, everyone, for listening to my story. Uh, it's, it's a good book. It's, um, it, it really hits home um, about reality and about, about what life's all about. Uh, it can start off miserable, but at the end of the day, it's rewarding. 
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.